Please rise. Court is now in session. All rise. All rise. Is It Legal 2? A regular look at the legal system and you. A special production of the Missouri Bar. I'm Bob Pretty. And I'm Farah Fight. Today we're going to talk about the need for our government at all levels to be open to the public. American statesman Patrick Henry once said, The liberties of the people never were, nor ever will be secure when the transactions of their rulers may be concealed from them. Thomas Jefferson said, Information is the currency of democracy. And whenever people are well informed, they can be trusted with their government. For whenever things go so far wrong as to attract their notice, they can be relied on to set things right. President Kennedy said the word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. Former Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor commented, A fundamental premise of American democratic theory is that government exists to serve the people. Public records are one portal through which the people observe their government, ensuring its accountability, integrity, and equity, while minimizing sovereign mischief and malfeasance. And one more. Many of you will remember Daniel Shore, the longtime CBS and NPR reporter who observed power corrupts, and there's nothing more corrupting than power exercised in secret. Missouri has what is known as the Sunshine Law that is intended to make sure government, state and local, operates openly. It covers open records and open meetings, but the law faces frequent challenges. We've invited one of Missouri's foremost attorneys on open government issues to be with us today. Jean Manneke is with the Manneke Law Group in Kansas City. For more than 25 years, she's been dealing with media law. She's the counsel for the Missouri Press Association and is the go-to person for all of the media when questions arise about open meetings, open records, and other sunshine issues. She comes to the legal profession with on-the-ground experience as a journalist. Uh, Like me, she's a recovering journalist. She's been a reporter (laughs) for several newspapers and magazines and was a columnist for the Kansas City Times, which for many years was the morning edition of the Kansas City Star. Welcome to our program, Jean. Thank you. Jean, what moved you from the newsroom to the courtroom? Why did you go from being a reporter trying to get information to becoming a lawyer who's fighting to make information available? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I finished college, took a year working covering federal courts in Springfield at the Springfield Paper, and just really wasn't through with my education process, and so decided rather than to go get a master's in journalism, I'd go to law school. And I went to law school, got out of law school, missed being on the ground, so I went right back to journalism and uh, eventually found myself in a position where the only way up was to go from working days to working nights and really didn't want to do that, so that's when I made the jump into actually practicing law. Let's just go right straight to the whole sunshine law thing. This, This came about, as I recall, in the 70s, we started to get our first sunshine law in Missouri. Actually, no. Actually, uh, 2023 is the 50th anniversary of Missouri Sunshine Law. The Freedom of Information Act was passed on July 4th of 66, but Missouri's first open records law was passed in 1973. And we were one of the first states in the nation to have an open records law, which is pretty exciting. I remember much of the debate at that time about what should be covered and what shouldn't be covered and who should be allowed to demand access to things like that. It... uh, Seems like we've made some progress, but there's always efforts to constrict the open records, open meetings law, isn't there? There There is, and Bob, that has been the most amazing thing for me in the last few years. 
my early career was full of opportunities to expand the law, to introduce new concepts as to what should be open and who should have access. And in the last five years, it's gone the other way, and it's gone pretty severely the other way. Now everybody wants to talk about privacy and individual rights, and while I understand that, that's important. By the same token, when you're talking about government and the way government controls our lives and and the concern about honest government, having openness is absolutely critical to making all that work. Let's talk a little bit about what is considered an open record and an open meeting. Um, Is it best to talk about records and meetings separately, or is there just a ton of overlap between the two? I've never thought about it from that standpoint. <laughs> I, I, in my mind, I have to talk about them separately. So let me do okay. that, and I'll, I'll keep it short. Uh, an, a meeting is any meeting of public uh, elected officials of a public governmental body. And anytime you have a quorum together and they're talking public business, that is that needs to be an open meeting. And there's requirements that the law sets out as to what has to happen in terms of notice and in terms of recording what happens at that meeting. And those re- those requirements don't apply if you've got fewer than a quorum. But there's always except fours that I won't worry about right now. But but the main part is if you've got a quorum together, then it is an open meeting. Open records, on the other hand, are just any record retained by the public body. And it's very simple. If they have it, it's a public record. They need to make it available to the public. Now, some records, some records aren't open for a number of years. Birth records, death records, things like that. Don't we have 50 years or 75 years, something like that? Right. Well, the issue of what is an open record is something that is set out in the Sunshine Law. Mm-hmm. Section 610.021 sets out about, uh, I think, beginning uh, Sunday, there's about 25 exceptions to what is open. And one of those exceptions is a big one. It's anything that's closed under Missouri statutes, like birth records, death records, Social Security information, anything like that is closed by other statutes. But then the the meat in 610.021 is the things that a public body may choose to close if they feel that they need to. I was on a program yesterday with a municipal lawyer, and he said, and I think he's probably right, that the big exception in that group is employee personnel records. And he said, you've got to close those. And I understand that while a lot of the things a public body does may or may not be closed, I understand why there's some concern about personal public uh, employee information being public. But the key is Policy decisions have to be made public. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anything a public body votes on needs to be open to the public, if not immediately, in a reasonable time period is set out in statute. I know when I was a journalist and I would request open records at that point in time, often it was a paper record that was in a Mm -hmm. file cabinet and it could be copied. Um, But does Today's open records extend to email correspondence, audio recordings or video recordings, since so many meetings are now streamed or recorded. Is it limited to just the the kind of the final paper report or does it cover all of the above? Oh, of course, Farrah. It's everything. (laughs) And you're right. Not only is a lot more digital in this day and age, it also is important for 
citizens to begin to think in terms of digital because the cost to get a digital copy of anything is less than the cost to get a paper copy. So nobody should be requesting paper copies of anything anymore. Get it emailed to you electronically and your cost will be a lot less. Plus, um, the other step back to that is always, if you go in and inspect the record, your cost ought to be next to nothing if you don't ask them to send you a copy. So, you know, there's ways that citizens who want to see a large amount of information can get that information without having to pay tons of money to get paper copies sent to them. Are there any limits to how much a public governmental body can charge to make a copy of a record? Yes, there are. And here again, the the law is different for electronic versus paper. They're all allowed to charge for the cost for a public employee to find that record. If there has to be some research done as to where it is and how much we have to give you, that, that search mechanism, when you're looking through piles of records, whether electronically or paper, is chargeable at the lowest employee cost cost. The lowest paid employee needs to do that work. Then the cost, there's a a flat charge of 10 cents a page for a paper copy for the copying fee. If you're doing electronic, it's just the cost if you have to download it onto a disk or something, which is why you're better off to ask them to put it on a cloud somewhere, to email it to you. That eliminates that cost of copies. And then, I don't know whether this is a good time to launch into that, but right now we're in a window where the cost that was always the biggest burden to citizens has been lifted. Shall we talk about that? Love yeah, to hear that. Sure. What is oh, that? Yes. Back um, in last uh, late, late spring, I believe it was this year, the Missouri Supreme Court decided that public bodies who are charging for their attorneys to go through records and separate open information from closed information cannot pass that cost on to the public. And... That had been a battle for years. Public bodies got lazy. They, they've always been told in the law, you have to separate. It's your duty to separate what's open from what's closed and make what's open available to the citizens, the public. Public bodies, like all of us, get lazy, and they just put everything together and thought, we'll separate them when the request comes in. So the request comes in, they call their attorney and say, we've got this pile of stuff. Would you go through it before we turn it over to the citizen who's asking for it? And the attorney comes in and starts billing significant amounts of money, and then they pay. They make the citizen pay that cost before they can get the copies. And that is wrong. That's just wrong under the law. And the Missouri Supreme Court agreed with that. And so now that burden is, is on the public body. And, and really, that goes back to the whole issue that a public body needs to have a policy that tells it what is open and what is closed. They need to say, we're going to close our minutes of our closed meeting under the the exceptions that are in the law, and all those records are going to be closed based on what the statute is. And we're also going to close this, and we're going to close that, and they need to have a reason why. But that way, the employees know what's open and what's closed. They don't have to bring law firms in to tell them, and it makes it easier for citizens to get that at a reasonable cost. How well educated are our public bodies on this issue? It depends. Um, A lot of them make 
training an important part of learning the job. On the other hand, there's a lot of smaller entities, counties, small rural cities that don't have anyone to train. And so they do depend on their state associations. And I I work a lot with groups like Missouri Municipal League and Missouri Association of Counties. Um, they do conduct seminars for their members. But, you know, anytime you have a state meeting, not everybody can attend. So it it varies, Bob. Some are well trained. Some are not so well trained. Do they have Do they have lessons on their on these association websites that uh, public officials can look at? Uh, I don't know if they have them on the website. Obviously, they have written materials that get out to people, and um, I certainly have worked with a lot of the lawyers in those groups to do in person seminars for people. So, if you're serving on a government board or commission or council or thinking about running. You suggest suggest that the Sunshine Law is something that you should get yourself up to date on? Absolutely. I can't imagine any public servant not thinking they needed to know what this law says. If I'm a private citizen, I want to file an open records request. Can I just write a letter or do I just walk in and say I want to see these records? What's the process I have to go through to get to see a record? It's really very simple. You don't have to make it in writing. I always think it's a good idea to make it in writing because then you've got proof as to when you made it and who you gave it to. But the, the law doesn't say it has to be in writing. But it does say that you need to give them the information about what you want. And that in some ways, is really the key to how good your your request is going to be. I think citizens are a little hesitant to tell people what they want, so their requests for public records tend to be very broad. And that, of course, means that there's more search that has to be done to make sure that they have everything that could fit into that description. And so you've got more time involved and, and possibly more search time involved. So the better a citizen can specify what they're looking for in that request, whether it's oral or written, the quicker they'll get a response, the less the cost will be. And I I understand people are afraid that they're targeting something when they do that, but I would urge people that, that it's in your benefit rather than detrimental to go ahead and be specific with that request. And I will add while we're talking about this, um, the Missouri Attorney General's website has a link to a Sunshine Law page, and one of the things on that page is a form Sunshine Law request. There is nothing wrong with just copying that form and using it. When they see that, they know exactly what it is, and it makes their job a little easier. So it's a bit more uniform, so they're they're yes. kind of used to seeing and having all those questions yes. uh, answered that it, might it help will. in the search. It will. It'll help okay. the citizen focus to their attention. All right. Um, I had a quick question, and a lot of times in our um, episodes about different areas of law, we find that you have to have certain standing in order to bring a case or a claim. Um, is that true with the Sunshine Law, or can just any citizen request any open record from any government body? Well, there's a lot of layers to that answer. Um, <laughs> Let's peel them back one by one like an onion, right? <laughs> well, Farah, any citizen can bring a Sunshine Law complaint. And obviously, a citizen is well-equipped to do that, to go to the attorney general's website, which has a form to fill out to make a complaint to the attorney general. 
And theoretically, when you make a complaint to the attorney general, someone on the AG staff will look at it and possibly will help intercede to resolve whatever issue you've got. Sometimes that works, sometimes that doesn't work, but it is available. Citizens can use it. If you're going to have to go further than that with it, then it becomes very difficult for a citizen to be their own attorney. There are so many nuances in the law, and this sounds like a real self-serving statement, but an attorney will really do a better job of presenting this kind of an argument to a court, you know, drafting the pleadings, knowing how the process works, than a, a private citizen will. I know there are some citizens who try to do that, and some are very successful at it. But it, it takes some skill to be able to manage it if you have to go to court. And unfortunately, which raises a whole other layer, that seems to be your two alternatives. Either you can go to the AG's office or you have to go to court. For many years, uh, even in the Missouri Bar Journal, I have advocated that we need someone in government to represent the citizen in terms of open records. Uh, there's someone who represents the citizen in terms of um, public utilities. I was just thinking that with the Public Service Commission, That's right, right exactly. Okay. We need someone like that. And Part of the problem is that the attorney general's office is conflicted. You know, you would think that might be a good place to put this person, but um, they represent public bodies as the state government entities that some citizens need to sue. So they're always hands off, can't touch that. And that leaves citizens with no advocate for that kind of an issue. I have explored and, and at times had uh, interest expressed back to me with housing that person in the Secretary of State's office. They have a, a real big interest in public records. But along with any suggestion for a new government position comes a cost. And uh, as, as in government talk, the fiscal note that any bill that would propose that would carry has made it really hard to move it along in the state legislature. So unfortunately, citizens in Missouri have no one to advocate for them on this but themselves and the lawyers that they pay. And we thank them for their service to us, but, but it's expensive to hire a lawyer. Let me ask you about some things that might or might not be closed or mm -hmm. open. How about adoption records? These are going to be tough questions for me, but <laughs> I believe that adoption records are closed. However, I know that there are some processes for adopted children to get in and to access some of that information. Or have somebody access it for them yes. and make contacts for them. Exactly. Uh, juvenile records. Juvenile records closed. are closed. Yes. Why? Because they're minor children. You know, everybody has a right to uh, have their past not confront them at age 17, and, and, and unless it's a felony, they, they should get a fresh start. Okay, but if, if a juvenile who's a troubled juvenile becomes a troubled adult, uh, his juvenile record doesn't follow him or her into the adult courts? No, not really, although I, I would say that if it's a severe record, I'm certain it does follow them into courts. You know, there's, there's that age 17 where normally you'd be a juvenile, but, but there, there's... Adult court applies to it. Yeah. I wanted to go back to the process that you first outlined and how you can use that form and file your request. Um, you mentioned the costs. Does the public entity or governmental entity have to give you an estimate of how much those costs are be, will be? Or could you just get, here's your records and here's a $1,000 bill to go along with it? Well, again, this this 
depends on how well you've written your request to them. If you're smart, you'll ask them to give you a quote so that you can determine if this is something I want to pay. By the same token, public bodies are smart. If they say to citizens, this is what we think it's going to cost, we need you to make a deposit before we begin this process because there's no point in them spending hours on something and then finding they're not going to get paid. And that has been one of the issues that's created controversy in in Jeff City in, in the legislature. A lot of public bodies go to their state reps and complain that that happens, that they get stiffed for work they've done for people who then don't come pick it up. And I think this is a case that the law now says that you can ask for payment in advance. And I do think this is a case where communication between the public body and the citizen is critical to making this whole process work without people being upset on either side. And then how long does that public body have to provide those records? Is it like a quick turnaround or does it is it one of those it depends answers? It depends. It's <laughs> a lawyer's favorite answer. Um, the law says that the public body must make a response within 72 hours after the uh, custodian of records receives the request. But that response can be, yes, we'll have it tomorrow, or it can be, no, you'll never get it because here's the exception that closes it. Or it could be, we'll have it for you as soon as we can get it. And then they need to give you a response as to what they think is a reasonable time for them to get it. And as a matter of fact, the case that I was talking about in terms of who pays the attorney's fees, uh, Gross versus Parson, meaning the governor, the court talked about that, no, it can't be just indefinite. They really need to give some specific idea on when they might be able to produce these records. And it it should be a reasonable amount of time. It shouldn't be years. It shouldn't be months. It, it needs to be reasonable. Does the law follow the money? And I base that on a lot of private organizations receive public funding. Can I go to a private organization that has government money and say, I need records that make you accountable for how you spent that money? You can go, but you may not get them. (laughs) Um, And actually, that's kind of one of the hot issues that lawyers who do what I do are, are talking about a lot right now. There are many public bodies... Well, okay, let's start further back than that. The law talks about quasi-public bodies, and it defines it as um, entities that are corporations that are nonprofit or public development. There's a, a small group that it mentions. And then it talks about associations that receive public funds, which I think is the critical part of that sentence. But to the extent that they receive public funds and they have direction over how they're spent, the law provides a mechanism that theoretically would give the public access to that information. Now, let's let's take one example uh, to talk about, well, there's kind of like three that are, are easy to group. Missouri School Board Association, Missouri Municipal League, Missouri Association of Counties are three associations, three nonprofit associations that exist I, you know, I don't see their budget, but I would suspect that we're more than 90% of their funding comes from public governmental bodies, whether it's school districts paying or uh, cities paying or counties paying. That's where the funds come from for those groups. And under that definition, it seems to me and to a few other lawyers that that gives citizens an opportunity to follow that money and see what's happening to it. 
Now, the uh, Boone County Court just this last week, I believe it was Boone County, um, ruled that no, those groups are not public, they're not quasi-public bodies. But that's just one, one circuit, one county in the state. Uh, that may be appealed. You know, a lot of things can happen. That's kind of the far side of your question and the most hot-button answer to your question, Bob. Taking it back now to where you kind of started, yes, there are organizations that particularly are set up to perform public services. There can be groups that run nursing homes, and they receive money from the government for patients there. Um, there are counseling centers that, that perform public services. Anytime a public body contracts with an entity to provide a public service, that opens this door to quasi-public bodies. And there are many of those that already clearly fall within that category. And yes, you can get that information. So many of these quasi-public bodies have to report back to the public body what they did with the money they've been given. And so you can go to that public body and get that information that way. I would hope so. I would hope so. I hope they're asking for an accounting. (laughs) I can't guarantee that. I'll try at least. Yes. (laughs) This sounds like a good time for a segment we call Legalese with retired Supreme Court Judge Mike Wolf. Legalese, that means we ask Judge Wolf to translate the lawyer's language into English. Judge? Each year in the month of March, we observe National Sunshine Week. The March dates are timed to coincide with the birthday of James Madison, our fourth president and a principal author of the United States Constitution. He's often referred to as the father of the Constitution. Actually, historians tell us that Madison, who also wrote some of the Federalist Papers explaining the Constitution and advocating for its adoption, initially opposed the idea of adding a Bill of Rights to the U.S. Constitution. But he soon enough changed his mind. Without a fairly certain prospect of adopting a Bill of Rights to protect the people from their government, there might not have been enough states ratifying the Constitution for it to take effect. So Madison, to his credit and to our benefit, campaigned for ratification of the Constitution in 1787 and endorsed the proposed Bill of Rights, which of course contains the First Amendment that guarantees freedom of speech and freedom of the press, which is something that is essential to today's idea of transparency. Some of Madison's initial hesitation may have come from his belief, and that of many founding fathers, that the states are where the people's rights are protected. The Bill of Rights only applied to the federal government initially. It was not until decades later, after the adoption of the 14th Amendment guarantees of due process and equal protection, After the Civil War that the U.S. Supreme Court declared in a series of 20th century cases that many of the guarantees of the Bill of Rights protect us from actions by state and local governments. But what, pray tell, does this have to do with sunshine? We would have to wait for about a century and a quarter after the adoption of the Bill of Rights for the introduction of the sunshine metaphor into our public discourse. Its author, as far as I can tell, was Louis Brandeis, who became a U.S. Supreme Court Justice in 1916. He wrote in 1914, quote, publicity is justly commended as a remedy for social and industrial diseases. Sunlight is said to be the best of disinfectants. Electric light, the most efficient policeman, close quote. As an aside, I note that Justice Louis Brandeis, as a young lawyer, was a member of the Missouri Bar. After graduating from a famous Eastern Law School in 1877, He was admitted to the Missouri Bar the next year and practiced law in downtown St. Louis for all of about seven months. 
before accepting an offer to be a partner with a law school classmate in a Boston law firm. There is a plaque on the St. Louis building, which is the site of Brandeis' brief career here as a Missouri lawyer. It's now the site of a Hooters, where I believe freedom of speech is encouraged, though not in the way Brandeis might have expected. It took another several years after 1914 for Brandeis's sunshine idea to become planted in our brains with the passage of legislation that requires the government to be open and to use the modern word transparent in its dealings. Congress in 1966 passed the Freedom of Information Act, which allows the public to obtain governmental records, with certain exceptions for things that apparently need to be secret. Missouri in 1973 passed its Sunshine Law, one of the first in the nation, which requires government meetings to be held in public, with a few exceptions, and provides penalties, including attorney's fees, against government officials who purposely violate the act. The state attorney general is empowered to help enforce the act, and the website of the attorney general has a helpful guide to our right to know what our state and local governments are doing, along with notable court decisions on the Sunshine Act. There is not yet a listing, however, for a recent case where the attorney general's office itself, under a fairly recent attorney general, was found to have purposely violated the law and was assessed attorney's fees in favor of the private lawyers who brought the suit to get records that the office falsely claimed that it did not have. As you can see, Missouri's private lawyers are often essential to enforcement of the Sunshine Law, helping the public get access to records and meetings to which the public is entitled. Sometimes those bringing the suit are newspapers, other media, a law group known as Sunshine and Governmental Accountability Project, and other private lawyers seeking to vindicate the public's right to know. Maybe you've not heard of Sunshine Week. It was started only 20 years ago by the American Society of News Editors, now called the News Leaders Association, and has grown into an enduring initiative to promote open government. The News Leaders Association has partnered with the Society of Professional Journalists to host an annual nationwide celebration of access to public information and in what it means for you and your community. As their website says, it's your right to know. Let's acknowledge a one bit of truth. While we expect our governments to be transparent and the politicians who run them confess to agreeing, the reality often is different. As I speak, most elections are over for a while. So let's reflect on some frequently heard campaign promises. First, I will be the most transparent officeholder in history. The public will at all times have access to the records of what they paid for. Second promise, we will have an open door policy. My staff and I will be frequently available to answer questions from our constituents. And let's try a third. This is your government. It's your money. And we will show you how it's spent. In that rather perfect world, everyone knows what's going on. The workings of the government are fully visible, and we are all very happy with our government. Now the reality. Doing everything in public is awkward, inconvenient, and an administrative headache, to say the least. This year, we celebrate Missouri's Sunshine Law's 50th birthday. The law requires records of governmental actions and meetings be open to the public with exceptions, as I mentioned. Commonly used exceptions include discussions of litigation, which might disclose information that would be protected by the attorney-client privilege, or real estate negotiations or transactions where public discussions might disclose to a potential purchaser what the government might be willing to sell the property for, or personnel matters that might include discussions of information about job performance or disciplinary matters that might affect a government employee's reputation. 
Oftentimes, it is not the disclosure itself that is the problem, but the timing of the disclosure. And there are challenges presented by government officials' use of new technology to exchange and delete messages that are actually government business that the public has a right to know and that we would expect to be preserved. Members of the public who are denied access to records and proceedings may sue. Remedies include forcing disclosure of the information, but the most powerful remedies are civil penalties and attorney's fees. But these are reserved only where the court finds that the failure or refusal to disclose the information constituted a purposeful violation of the law. That's the standard that the Missouri Supreme Court read into the law 25 years ago, and it has resulted in less than robust enforcement. It's still a good law, though, and of course the legislature could make the law stronger, but that's a hard sell. Nevertheless, these roadblocks shouldn't stop us from believing that the government's business is our business. When our political leaders tell us they fervently believe in government transparency and accountability, here's a simple rule. Watch what they do, not what they say. This is Mike Wolf, not throwing shade, but seeking sunshine. Legalese. Let's get into the meetings. Okay. Uh, we have a lot of public bodies that have meetings regularly or irregularly. And in all new platforms, too. Yes. And all, all <laughs> yes. kinds of, especially with the pandemic, yes. where we've had to work in place. What does the law say about public bodies telling the public they're going to meet or they're going to take up an issue? Anytime a public governmental body plans a meeting, it needs to be either an open meeting or a closed meeting. And those are the only two kinds of meetings public bodies can have. Although, as you listen to what people say, you will hear them talk about executive meetings or all kinds of meetings. But really, there's only open meetings and closed meetings. Either way, there has to be a notice posted 24 hours in advance on the door of the, the office where they meet or on a bulletin board that they regularly use for that or on the door where they're going to hold their meeting at. That notice needs to have date, time, place where the meeting's going to take place and a tentative agenda as to what they expect they're going to talk about. And the law also says that if the media has asked to get copies of those, that you make them available to the media. Now, that used to be a big issue, but in this day and age, things like that are posted online. Unfortunately, they get posted on social media accounts, which I don't know if that's exactly the best place to post that kind of thing. But at any rate, uh, it is not as hard as it used to be to get access to that. And there was a big discussion at the group I was with yesterday about, well, what if we need to change that agenda? And yes, you certainly can change that agenda. Uh, there are times that things come up that you need to add to it, and the law provides that you can do changes in an agenda because you've got an emergency. I think if your fire truck breaks down, the fire district needs to get a meeting called and get a new fire truck. But if it's something that 24 hours, 48 hours wouldn't hurt to wait, then I think they need to post a new agenda. Now, I've seen a lot of agendas that at the bottom of it, there is a paragraph that says, that basically says we might need to have a closed session here, which is part of the agenda, which they don't have to have one at all, but it leaves the possibility open for them. So they can, they can put that out as their agenda and still go into a closed session as part of that meeting. And what's worse than that is they often say, we're going to close it under these exceptions because, mm -hmm. you know, a, a notice of a closed meeting yeah. has to say why you're closing it. So they then list every single exception under the Sunshine Law. Instead of the specific one to that Ex specific meeting. Exactly. Okay. And 
uh, that is worthless and really an insult to the public. I, I think it's on the back of the public body to recognize in advance, do we need to have a public, uh, a closed meeting? Because those, as I've indicated, have to be noticed up to. And they need to know what exceptions are going to apply to this closed meeting. And they need, if they're going to meet, they need to limit their discussion to those that they have noticed up. And there's no way anybody is going to have a discussion of more than one or two topics in in a closed meeting. So what are the exemptions? Hiring and firing of personnel. Yeah, there's a personnel exemption. Uh, there's an acquisition of property. Right, real estate. Uh, so illegal. And illegal. Yeah, those are the three that are most often used. But each one is really specific, and it's important that the members of the public body read that through and think, do we fit within this definition? Because you can't interpret those exceptions broadly. You must interpret them narrowly, the court says. So like the, the litigation, it must be uh, lit, uh, actual litigation, a cause of action, which means somebody's threatening you with lawsuit, or consultation with your attorney. You're allowed to have a closed meeting with your attorney. For example, the employment one must be hiring, firing, disciplining, and promoting. Of a specific person? Of a specific person, right. yes. And, and where specific personal information is going to be discussed. You can't hold a closed meeting under that exception to just talk about a general across-the-board pay raise. So if you were a school board talking about giving everyone like a certain cost of living, that would be open? That would absolutely okay. be open. And... Actually, that whole personnel exception, the issue about salary, I have real questions about whether you're ever allowed. If you're just talking about a pay raise for an individual employee, I don't, since salary is something that has to be open, which we, we could talk about in a minute, but that subject is never closed. But I, I realize that public bodies often mix discussions of, well, why, what's the merit? Is this employee a good employee? Are they doing their job? If they're doing evaluation stuff at the same time, then it gets harder not to have it in a closed meeting. But salaries should be open records. Salaries should be open records. There's an exception that talks about individually identifiable personnel information being closed, you know, health records or the the days that you're absent from for those kinds of situations. But it it's real clear that salary, name, address and salary are never closed information. As a matter of fact, one of the most recent cases out of the uh, Missouri court system said for the first time that employees' cell phone numbers are closed in, in that personnel exception. If, if cell phone numbers are closed, why would addresses not be closed? I don't know. Good question, it, but, but they're not. It's a matter of personal security mm-hmm. in both cases, I would think. I would think so. I, I, I think the, the, the thing about your address is everybody can see where you live, mm-hmm. you know, and, and cell phones very often involve financial stuff. Cell phones now are more than just telephones. They're, yeah. they're data. You remember the state official manual for many years mm-hmm. used to publish yeah. the home addresses of the state employees. Right. Yes. And their salaries. And their I was salaries. Gonna... And now all it, is, it just covers their salaries. Yes. So. It's map your taxes. Yeah. I think yeah. dot mode dot gov. Yeah. So that, uh, that, that eliminated their home, home addresses many years ago. Well, and the issue with that, people say, why do they need to know my home address? Well, some jobs require that you live in a certain geographic area. Uh, I think everybody has a right to know when you elect a public official, do they actually live in your jurisdiction? 
you're paying taxes to pay their salary. So why shouldn't you be able to know where they live? Are there potential exceptions for security concerns? Um, if you're a judge or in law enforcement um, where you're involved in kind of escalated, mm-hmm. you know, high-risk uh, disputes, are, are there exceptions for that? There are. Um, that has all come out in the last few years as there's been more physical attacks of people. For those of us who are purists, and we are fewer and fewer, I fear, but I, I think that that's not right. I think that the public has a right to know where does the judge live. And some of that goes back to the whole idea that everybody needs to be treated equally under the law. Uh, I happen to live down the street from a judge who I'm dear friends with. But by the same token, I'm able to look up on tax records and know that she's not gotten a break on her real estate taxes. And if I didn't know where she lived, I wouldn't know that. I wouldn't know if she were being treated differently than I am by uh, people in our county. And I think those are fair questions for the public to ask. It, It makes it a real difficult decision. When a governmental body decides it wants to have an executive session, a closed meeting... It has to vote to do so. Yes. And each member has to vote. Uh, it has to be a roll call vote, yes. Yeah. And then to come out. Now, is is there a time limit that requires them to divulge what was talked about, if not specifically, broadly? Each exception has to be taken individually. Okay. A lot of the exceptions in 610.021, in Section 610.021, don't have any time frame on them whatsoever. Records closed under that exception can be closed forever. But some do. For example, the the three that we talked about, the, the litigation exception, whenever the matter is finally resolved, that information has to be available to the public. And uh, the real estate one, number two, uh, the uh, buying, selling, or, or renting real estate, when the deal is done, when the final contracts are signed, that information all becomes public. And the one that's most often of interest to people is the hiring, firing, disciplining, and promoting. When a vote is taken to do one of those four things within 72 hours, and it's not at the end of 72 hours, it's within 72 hours, that information needs to come out to the public as to what's happened to that person. Actually, that leads to another issue that I'm seeing develop. There's been a lot of discussion about, well, we can't talk about who's an employee. I just wanted to ask because the employment right now, it's very competitive for employees. Mm -hmm. Lots of people are hiring and applying for new jobs. If I'm a former or a current employee of a public entity and someone wants to call and check my references and it's a closed record, does that work? No, it doesn't work. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because your performance material as a public employee is not going to be available to anyone wow. unless you okay. make it available to them yourself. But where I'm getting the complaints is public bodies vote uh, to accept resignations. And because they think that's not a vote to hire, fire, discipline, or promote, they don't make that public. I don't, I don't understand how you can vote to accept a resignation, first of all, because people are not in a position where they can't quit. 
<laughs> you know, when you quit, you quit. But but I can understand, I guess there are times contracts maybe are involved, and that's a whole different issue. Then you've got to settle an employment contract. But for public bodies to say, well, we're not going to release who we've terminated to you, uh, clearly, who is an employee and who isn't an employee is a is a matter of public record. And so I see no reason that should be withheld. How about a non-disclosure agreement that is part of a resignation rather than a firing? Is is that non-disclosure? How does that play into anything? In well, a, you, can, you can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> the um, public bodies don't have a right to have non-disclosures in terms of money. I suppose there are some terms they could put in a non-disclosure that could be enforceable. But the amount of money that's paid to somebody by a public body in connection with employment issues is always always has to be disclosed at the end of the day, whether it was paid by the public body or whether it was paid by an insurance company that insures the public body, it's public information. But as a reason for firing someone, can there be a non-disclosure agreement worked out between firing and, and so on so that I don't know I don't know why somebody was fired? Yes, I, I would say there probably is. I don't, I'm not aware that there's a, a provision for why you've discharged somebody. I believe that's personnel. Is there a why for resignations, when somebody resigns, can can the public body explain why this person resigned? Well, yes, I think they can if they choose to. I mean, mm-hmm. all of the exceptions are are uh, may. You know, you may mm-hmm. close this record under this exception. Now, if I were a personnel attorney, I might tell you, no, I don't want the public body ever saying anything about a person that has been terminated because we just get ourselves in trouble and we'll get sued. And I can understand that. That makes sense. But certainly there's nothing in the law that says you you have to keep it secret. I wanted to go back to the very beginning of our conversation because when we talk about meetings, we talk about a quorum quite often. And I'm curious, is a quorum defined in the Sunshine Law, or is that defined by each entity? So is it different in every scenario? No, it's it's only okay. different in the sense that every public body has a different number of members, okay. theoretically. And, you know, for the county commission, you've got three members, so two is always a quorum. And if you've got city council and it's got eight or ten members, then it's 50% plus one. But by the same token... I will tell you that there are situations where a court could find a quorum existed in theory without 51% ever physically getting together. There was a case a number of years ago involving one of our former AGs where the argument was made that there were a, a series of individual meetings of fewer than a quorum. Each one was identical. But it was the same thing happening over and over again. And the term that he used was a wagon wheel provision. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, they, they just met over and over with groups until they argued the issue out, had a, a decision by a quorum of the people. And then they got together in the uh, meeting and they took a vote and by gum, it passed. But there was never any discussion about it, which raised a lot of questions. And so there have been cases where courts have said, yes, if you have a meeting where you uh, avoid having a quorum with the intent of frustrating the Sunshine Law, then we will find you violated the law. But you have to have real specific facts to back that kind of thing up. Otherwise, if people just talk about things one-on-one among themselves, there's nothing wrong with that. Can members of the public body leave their vote? 
with the chair or leave it on record? Or do they have to be present and accounted for part of that quorum to cast their vote? That That's an interesting question. Uh, my first thought I was going to say to you, well, that's not a sunshine law question, but actually it is. And it, it relates more to the issue of how they're holding the meeting. Back in the early days, everybody met in person always. And so these kinds of issues didn't come up. But even when the changes were made, and I'm wanting to say it was about like 97, 98, meetings began becoming electronic. Now, back in those days, we had things like chat rooms or various you know, conference calls, those kinds of things. And now we've got Zoom meetings. And uh, amazingly enough, Missouri's legislature was savvy enough to say a meeting can include by means of communications equipment. So we were ready for, for COVID when it hit. And yet it also talks about that if you're having a meeting of a quorum with other members a meeting electronically, attending electronically, that the only ones who can vote are the ones who are actually in the room. So, you know, there are provisions in the law that dictate how people conduct electronic meetings. And I'm really hoping, uh, this is what I, I wanted to mention to Bob earlier, I'm really hoping that with COVID fading from the scene, as we all hope, that public bodies will continue looking at ways to make meetings more available to the public. Before, you had to physically show up for a meeting, and not everybody can do that. But more and more members of the public are able, they understand Zoom, and they, they can get online and attend the meeting electronically. And I think that's a benefit to public bodies. I'm a big believer that the more you bring the public along with you, the more satisfied voters you'll have and the less controversy you'll have. People want to know why you're doing what you're doing. I was going to say, I know I've streamed our local city council meetings, you know, virtually or online while I was cooking dinner at home. So exactly. Yeah. If there was a item on the agenda that I was interested in being up to date at instead of waiting for the newspaper article the next morning. Yeah. Right. If I'm sitting in the audience at a public meeting, can I pull out my cell phone and record that meeting? as a member of the public sitting in that room? Yes, you can. <laughs> they, they don't like that, but yes, you can. The law specifically allows you to record public meetings. Is there any limitation on, I guess, being disruptive while doing it? So... Well, yes. I'm guessing. I, I'm guessing I can't go around the room being very like cinematic yes. approach. <laughs> no, you you can't go wandering around behind the council members and record over their shoulder. Well, you yes, you've got to be serious about how you do this, and and they do have some rights to to protect their being. Uh, there's also let me add that there's also a case that doesn't involve city council. It actually involved the Missouri legislature. They had a committee that some political groups wanted to come record meetings at, and the court said, no, they have a mechanism already where they record it and they make that available to the public. And so that's it. That's all you get. And and in that case, I think part of the reason had to do with the disruption of having people in the room recording it. Actually, I want to segue from this into something real related, and um, you're probably thinking about talking about this too, I bet. What about public comments during meetings? Uh, a lot yeah. of public bodies don't, uh, they struggle with what do we do with citizens who want to address the council? And 
public bodies are not required ever to have citizen comments. Uh, they they can be disruptive. I understand. I, you know, I think it's a good thing. There's a lot of viral videos about either very impassioned mm-hmm. or funny yes. public comments. Right. Yes. And and they're good for the, the public body's members to hear what the citizens think. But they also can take up way more time than the public body has to make the meetings impossible to get done. And so public bodies are not required under the Sunshine Law to ever allow public comment. Now, some city, cities have in their city ordinances things about that. And so, yes, there can be other mechanisms that provide for it. But that's not something that a public body has to do. Now, I've seen some public bodies that allow it, but they have time limits. Right. Yeah. Yes. Or, you know, you can always call your city councilman up individually and have a long chat with them. But... We haven't talked about penalties for people mm-hmm. who violate mm-hmm. this law. Can a person or a body be fined for violating the law? Yes. What happens is somebody has to take them to court and file a lawsuit that alleges they violated the Sunshine Law. And first the court will decide whether what they did was so wrong that they need to uh, have to redo the meeting uh, or whether the action was not so serious that they just go ahead and leave the wrongful act in place, slap their hands, but say, don't do it again. And and so first the judge will make that assessment about whether you have to redo what was done that was wrong. Then the judge has to decide what kind of penalty should be imposed. And that involves a weighing of whether it was a knowing violation or a purposeful violation. The more serious is a purposeful violation. And I think the shorthand definition of that is you knew what you did was wrong, but you did it anyway. If the court finds it was a purposeful violation, the court is going to order the payment of attorney of attorney's fees against the public uh, against the public body given to the person who brought the lawsuit. And the court is also going to impose a fine of up to $5,000. So there will be a fine imposed for that. If it's not purposeful, if it's something less than that, the court will also decide what kind of penalty they should impose, and that should be up to $1,000. And then the court will decide may, whether, they, whether or not they will impose uh, a payment of the attorney's fees of the plaintiff on the public body. So if, if, you, if you have gotten a purposeful violation, you're going to pay the attorney's fees of the person who sued you, and sometimes that's bigger than any penalty that they can assess against you. And one last thought with all of this is that a, a person who wants to bring a lawsuit only has two years after the act to bring it. So there's a very limited period of time. So the lawsuit is always against the body as opposed to the individual members who might have taken a vote. It depends on what has happened. Uh, the body is who is sued, but also I, I would sue the individual members both because to some degree it's up to the court. But really it, the individual members are – I guess it depends on what was actually done. The individual members are the ones who – voted. The, the body's the one who then takes the action. So I think you need them all in the lawsuit to make sure you get everybody before the court. I know we've talked earlier about resources that are available for those who are elected to serve on uh, governmental entities. Uh, what resources do you recommend for the public, for citizens um, who are looking to 
um, use the Sunshine Law in their own search for public information? Well, the first place you ought to go is the Attorney General's website. They have a page about the Sunshine Law, and there is a tremendous amount of material on that page to help guide you. They have a booklet that they have available electronically, or if you're a paper person, you can call them and ask them to send it to you. And it's got the law in it, so it's you can carry it with you. It's at your fingertips. Uh, they've got some Q&A for frequently asked questions. Uh, they even mention some of the cases that are key decisions in terms of the Sunshine Law in the state. And then if you just get online and do searches for Missouri Sunshine Law, there's a wealth of material out there, materials that I've put out and and other law firms have put out. So uh, there's quite a bit of writing on the Sunshine Law available. The Missouri Bar even has some great resources on the Sunshine Law in books for the media, but certainly available on the Missouri Bar website for the public. Absolutely. I was going to say you drafted many of those for us, Jane. Thank you. Thank you so much for volunteering your knowledge and most of the time, people hear about this kind of thing because they read in the newspaper or hear on radio or television that some information has been obtained with a Freedom of Information request. That's that's the kind of sunshine thing. But I do want to emphasize that it's not just those of us in the media. It's the citizen who has the same right to get the same kind of information. And that's what that law is all about. The law is not written just for the news media. It's written for folks. Right. And let's add to that uh, a point that we all talk shorthand that sometimes the public doesn't understand that what we know about that. There are actually two laws. There is the Missouri Open Records Law, which we call the Sunshine Law. There's also the Federal Freedom of Information Act. The thing is, that only applies to federal agencies and the federal government. But it does much the same as the Missouri Sunshine Law does. On the other hand, the rules about how that applies are totally different. And your request is different. And so when you start to think, I'm going to ask my government a question, one of the first questions you need to think in your mind is, is it state or local government or is it federal agency? In which case, a whole different law applies. And that's kind of beyond our topic today. It is. It is. But but it's good to know that what you look to, given the entity that you're looking. Well, and let's let's tag one more thought onto that, I guess, (laughs) if we're going to be thorough about it. The third category is court records, which are governed by the Missouri Supreme Court and are not uh, governed by the Sunshine Law. And we actually had a full episode with uh, Judge Lynch on Missouri's court automation committee and system and its works. Good. Yeah. And the access that people can have to court records. That's going to be great. Yes. How far back do the court records go that we can get access to now? Do you know, Farrah? So the new remote public access via case.net, um, the Supreme Court of Missouri issued an order earlier this year. And as of July 1st, 2023, all records filed on that date going forward will be available in case.net um, for any member of the public. Um, unless, uh, you know, there might be a, a exemption for certain things such as juvenile cases, what is traditionally limited under the law. Um, but uh, so that will be all going forward from that date forward. Currently, um, any citizen can go to a kiosk in any courthouse in Missouri and access all uh, existing records and view those. Great. Well, um, we want to thank 
everybody for being with us and listening to us today for this edition of Is It Legal 2? Is It Legal 2 is a special production of the Missouri Bar. And Gene Manike, we thank you very much for being with us. This has been most informative, and uh, we appreciate the words. Sure. It's not just for reporters. It's for people like you and me, Farrah. Absolutely. For everybody. There are some resources you might want to check out about open meetings and open record laws, the Sunshine Law. Just go to MissouriLawyersHelp.org. You can find an array of information on various legal topics at that same site. And the site provides information that will help you better understand the law, because the more you know about the law, the better decisions you can make for your life, your family, and your finances. Again, that's MissouriLawyersHelp.org. Nothing further, Your Honor. You've been listening to Is It Legal 2, a regular look at our legal system and you. It's a special production of the Missouri Bar. I'm Bob Pretty. And I'm Farah Fight. Thanks for being with us. Opinions and positions stated by guests and presenters in the Is It Legal 2 podcast are those of the guests and presenters and not necessarily those of the Missouri Bar. This program is intended as information for lawyers and citizens of Missouri in conjunction with other research they deem necessary in the exercise of their independent judgment.